0: If you weren't here, don't worry, we're in for it today. We're going through our book, uh, uh, a book of James right now. We just started last week with our intro, and, it, and James is, is, a lot of times we can read pieces of James and get snippets and go, oh, that was a really good wisdom piece, or, uh, and sometimes it can be read as wisdom literature, like a Proverbs or something like that. But I I look at James, and I think James is probably one of the most convicting uh, books of the Bible to me. And I think when it comes to James, today especially, today will be a day that I I want you to hear that that you're going to feel conviction. I know you didn't come to church to feel that way. You came to feel really happy. But today is a day when we read this passage it 's for examination, ex- examining yourself and going, "Do I do that even at a very uh, uh, sub- subversive level, or even just a hidden level, or part of me that i don 't really want to acknowledge? James today does that, and i 'm not going to lie. I, I w- 've taught this section of scripture so many times, and it 's amazing how the Bible is is that you can go years reading something. And kind of just go, okay, I think I, I got that. I think I'm doing a good job in that. And then it hits you where God is speaking to you and saying, actually, you don't do this as well as you think you do. Here's some areas that I want you to work on. And so James has done this for me throughout this whole week. Um, and, and how I was thinking about it, and maybe it's a question that we can all ask, which is this, have you ever have you ever thought something about somebody and then had a thought, and it's usually negative, but then either over time seeing their character, you realize that those negative thoughts you had were very judgmental, or you heard things about a person, and then you met them and realized, wow, that's not at all what I thought. Has is, is anybody felt this in your life? Yes, it, this is a very common thing. How about this? Let's step it down even to a more of a hard place and go, I just saw somebody, and I just immediately categorized them as whatever way I wanted to see them, negatively or even positively, until I met them and I, my eyes were open through hearing a little bit more of their life. Have you ever felt that? I, I have, examining myself, I have certain, certain kind of things that I'll do that I, I just felt convicted about myself as I'm going through... James chapter 2. And it can be that quick assessment of somebody. If I just say, well, I've encountered X, Y, and Z people who 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 are this way, this person models some of those. So therefore, I kind of categorize them quickly sometimes. Can anybody feel like they've done that before? And I feel like I had a teacher, and this was this was before I was a Christian, but it was still a nature that I needed to deal with. he came into our school, and he was different. He was a different teacher. I went to a private school, and he uh, he dressed weird. Do you know what I mean? Like that teacher, you're just like, every day, you're just like, oh, my gosh, I can't focus. It's your clothing. I can't. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then he would just say weird stuff to me as this kid who's like listening to Nirvana, and I'm listening to this guy who's the happiest guy in the world. And I'm like, in a dark place. And I'm like, oh, I, you know, I just judged this guy so hard. And I was one of the few students who broke this guy. I worked hard to break him. And finally I got it where he threw his eraser down and he left the room and I was like, wow, I won. If you, do you know what I'm talking about? If you're a teacher, I'm sorry that you have these students, but maybe one day they'll just get their life together. I, I just was that guy. And he just he just came back just more positively. And he was always caring about me. I was his student enemy number one. And he still kind of kept trying to reach out and connect with me. And uh, I remember when I got in really really big trouble at my school and a lot of the teachers kind of just didn't want anything really to do with me and I remember I'd taken some time and I was on break and I'd come back to the school for my first time back and I came to a basketball game and uh it was it was weird because everybody was judging me very hard. People were very surprised that I was even there. As I began to like trying to turn my life around a little bit. And as I walked in, the first person I see is this guy. And he was like, "How are you? We've missed you." And it was like I could feel the daggers from everybody else, do you know what I'm talking about? And then but this guy just right away and I'm like, "How could you be so nice to me? I've been so cruel to you." And later on, as I became a pastor, he became the principal of the school, which was a good choice for the school. And then he, right away, just said, can you come share at our chapel? And I was like, me? The guy who this school hated? Who was notorious? And they let me come up, and I could see some of my old teachers just kind of just uncomfortable in their seat, just like, why are you letting him share? And it was an amazing thing I saw of, like, just the more I saw this guy's character, the more I completely misjudged who he was. James 2, uh, 2, 1 through 13, which we're going to look at, hits us really hard in the heart. And James is trying to do a wake-up call, because if you remember last week, James is trying to get them to look past their circumstances of what they're experiencing, to see the real joy of the kingdom no matter what's happening. Now James is going to say, you need to get past looking at surface value at people. You need to look past the person and see who God sees and see them how God sees them. So let's just pray. God, we love you. We thank you, God. I ask that as we get into this uh, text, that some of us in this room m- may not even realize that we show partiality where, where it, in fact, it might be even be a sin and how we're doing it. And God, some of us in this room may deal with a judgmental heart. And God, that we need a heart change in this area because we serve the living God who shows no partiality. And God, to be people of you and to be a church that represents you, help us as a church, help us as individuals to see people the way you see people. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. James is trying to get us to see one thing. Because of who you are changes the way you see. And he's trying to remind them who they are. When you know who you are, then you see people differently. I titled this message, Through God's Eyes. This is the ultimate dream. is to be able to see people how God sees people. You would see every person differently if you could see them the way God sees them. If you uh, remember, you can go back to the time of when maybe you were at your worst in life and God saw you, and what did he see? What did he look upon you with? Judgment, anger, hatred, or when you encounter God and reach to him, did you experience compassion, grace, and mercy? That's who God is every single time. He does not fail. If I had a goal, and I would say my goal might be aligned with James's, James' goal is to see people as God sees them to the very best of your ability. Sometimes when I'm in a hard meeting and I'm in a difficult place and I've met with people that I'm looking across the table with and I go, I do not respect who you are as a person. Have you ever been in those meetings where I'm like, I'm going to hear you, I'm going to listen to you, but I do not like the kind of person that you are. And I have to pray this prayer. God, help me see them the way you see them because otherwise my, my natural ability will hold me back. And I have to for God's sake and for their sake. There's this um, uh, a YouTuber, a friend of mine sent me one of his videos. And it was a really interesting video. And his, his uh, channel is kind of a weird title, but it's called Soft White Underbelly. And what this guy does is... Is He has gone in, and I think there's some people uh, that you can put up there, I don't know if that's up, that, that, that are people that he generally he'll document, and he goes to all different walks of life, to the people that we generally in life will have a quick prejudgment on. And I watched many of the videos, and, and they were very heart-touching, and immediately my first response is to struggle not to just categorize them quickly and say, well, that's just what they are. And I have to look beyond further than that. And he helps you do that of getting to where, where did you come from? What's your life like? What was your life like? What led you to this place? And there are people from all walks of life all over the country. And it makes you just pull back for a second and say, I could have judged them at first by looking at them, but, but hearing who they are brought my heart a little bit more softer, more compassionate. To see them maybe for what they aren't, but really who they are. What is it that makes it hard for us to see people? And, and I know as Christians, and, I, and I, I would say Christians above anybody else that I've encountered, work very hard to see people for who they are. And I applaud Christians for that. And I think that James is writing to Christians as well when he's reminding them of stay on task Stay on target for how we treat people and how we can avoid being a judgmental person. Sometimes I wonder, how do we come up with some of the ways that we will judge people or the way that we will treat people? Some of it, you wonder, is it nurture or is it nature? And, and if I think about the nurturing part, yeah, some of it, we, we, we grow up in our families and our family says, well, those people are just like that. And so we kind of carry this on or this is how things are done and this is how people should be treated this way and we carry that with us. Some of it's our environment and just what we're raised in and we... Maybe don't even know any better, but we just develop some biases towards people. Some of it is a little bit of experience. You know, if I've had a few bad experiences, nothing to any police officers in here, nothing. So if you're a police officer, I love and applaud what you do. We thank you. Um, but some people have even biases towards police officers. As a kid, when I was growing up, if I saw a police officer, I was like, oh, get away from him, get away from him, quickly get away, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Or if I see him at all in the rear mirror, I'm like, oh no, oh, no, 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 no. And if I met somebody in person who was a police officer, I would start to get nervous, like, oh, he's definitely going to know. He's going to know I ran that red light. He's going to look up my driving record. You know what I mean? It's just this natural experience thing until you begin to really get to know police officers. Peers, they can set a tone for us in just the, the nurturing part of our life, the, the tone that sometimes can be quick to judge. Media can do this. Our culture can do it. Oh, man, gossip can do this. Just setting a viewpoint, you know, slander, even fear, just the fear of the unknown or fear of what I've heard, or even just a lack of trust. You haven't built trust, so therefore I will judge you. A lack of curiosity, I think, generally is what creates the greatest distances in our culture within people every one of you in here have a story. My, my dream is to know your story. Every one of you come from somewhere. Every one of you have gone through things. Everybody here is more than what you just appear here in the few moments that we know you. You should be known. And the, it, 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 that curiosity, when we, can, when we can ask people further questions than just the prejudgment, leads us into a real story. Or even just a general self-focus, just I'm worried about me. I don't want to care about anybody else. I'm busy. Don't you understand? I don't have time for that person's story to get to the heart of it. If, if you ever have seen kids when they interact with each other, there's not a lot of time for judgment. Uh, that's what I love about kids. When all of the kids who are going over here in, in our children's ministry right now, most of them don't even know each other. All they know is do you like that toy? I like that toy. Let's hang out. You want to play? Oh, bye. And they're all sudden fast friends. Have you noticed this when you pick up your kids? You're like, how do you know them? I don't. I just met them today. Oh, they're wonderful. Don't you wish we had that heart like that? You know, when you look back, especially in celebrating tomorrow, Martin Luther King, one of the things that most powerful statements he made, and I think it came directly from the gospel... And when he talked about his dream, his dream wasn't necessarily for things to change right then and there. His dream is what he talked about when kids would sit down with each other from different races and different classes and see each other for who they are and not for what they look like or maybe not where they come from. That's the dream that he had. I love that idea of of having like a childlike heart when it comes to people. Kids can teach us a lot in that way and they can humble us a lot in that way. Jesus said this, he said, you know, if you desire to be someone like me, you must have a childlike faith. Paul wrote in the New Testament, if you, if you want to be reborn, you also must, as a, re, as a rebirth, must relearn, meaning that you're going to have to relearn a lot of the things that we've learned in our life and unlearn them. And learn to live like Jesus, even like a child in the beginning. I think when we talk about nature, though, this is where I think James is trying to hit hard and say, you got to know your nature. God's nature is really, really clear all throughout Scripture. God's nature is definitely this, no partiality. You, You wouldn't be here as a believer having the hope that you have if you thought God was partial. Some of us have horrific stories, and God was not partial. Some of us, your story wasn't that way, and God is not partial. He loves you all equally, exactly the same. Some of us here, when we look at God, we see that He is a righteous judge, that that judgment maybe shouldn't be in our hands. Because we're not capable of being a righteous judge. So God says, why don't I take the judgment from you and let me have that. And then you just worry about learning to walk like Jesus. I'll handle the judgment because of who he is. Another thing that God, they very clear on is God judges the heart, and you can see it in story after story in the Bible. Moses, who was very incapable to do what he was called to do, God says, I love your heart and you're the right person for the job. David, who was the least in his family, God says, this is the person right here, this is the one, and they're like, are you kidding me? And he's like, that's the one he sees the heart. Gideon is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because I relate to him. He, he says these things when God is talking to him and saying, I've got these things for you to do. And Gideon's like, no, no, no. Have you ever tried to talk God out of something? I'm the least, the, the, our, our, my family's the least in the whole neighborhood and I'm the least in my family. And God's like, there you go. I love that. Like this, God, God feels insane sometimes. But God is looking for the heart. That's his nature. John the Baptist, we don't really talk much about John the Baptist, but if John the Baptist walked into church right now, we we would much more accept Jesus. You know, he wore like robes and, and he walked around and he had nice sandals. John the Baptist was a beastly man. He wore skins and he ate bugs and he was out prophesying and he was second to Jesus, one of the most important figures in Scripture for the introduction of the Messiah. And then you look at the Pharisees and you compare and you go, they're so eloquent. They were so groomed. They ate great food. They hung out in the right crowds. And then God is using John the Baptist. This is the very nature of God. But when you look at our nature, Mm Our nature is different and we have to fight it. We have to marry ourselves to the new nature that God gave us. Here's our nature a little bit. We love status. When somebody of status walks in, we're like, oh, wow, so and so is here. And it captures our attention. And we'll, we'll, we'll be like, hey, I'm sorry, mom, I got to go. I know it's been a long time, but so and so walked in who I don't even know. I'm sorry, friend, who I've known for a long time, but so-and-so's here, right? We, we naturally have to fight these things. And I'm not going to lie, looks. Looks is a thing. We struggle with it. I spent a, a rabbit trail time reading about studies of looks that they've done. They've done extensive things about how looks in life get you further in our culture, right? And some of them, you won't believe it. You are less likely to be convicted for a longer sentence if you are more attractive. How? How is that justice? In Leviticus, God directly tells the Israelites, when you judge, you cannot judge based on someone's wealth or status or you are not fit to judge. And we struggle with this. So this is why God is the just judge. Because we'll we'll quickly go. Oh well, you know what? You're beautiful, so um, you're hired. (laughs) You know, and there are so many stats of people who are more attractive get higher tips. People who are more attractive get job interviews more than other people. People who are more attractive obviously uh, uh, further themselves in life just based on something that they had nothing to do with. We have this. It's like this beauty bias. And so we struggle with that. If someone's more beautiful, we'll give them our time. If someone's more wealthy, and I'm not downplaying accomplishment, but if someone's more wealthy and we find ourselves going, you are more interesting to me right now in this conversation than this other person who's not as wealthy, so I want to be seen by you who are wealthy, then these are struggles that we have in ourselves. Fame. Fame. Here's mine. I'm going to tell you. I don't really struggle with many of those other ones bad. Like if somebody walks in and they're wealthy, I I don't care about that. What I will struggle with is their social ability. If someone's more social, I'll find myself gravitating over there and then... And then be like, oh, I like having fun. I like being social. And, and this other person here is a little bit more hard work. I'm confessing my sin to you right now. I hope you appreciate it. I didn't want to say this because I don't want to be, feel weird that I do that. I work on this so much, but I will find myself naturally gravitating away because it's more socially easy for me. You know, there are bubbles and we create them. And we have to work hard as believers to crush those bubbles. It's, it's difficult. The Bible says that we have been given a new nature. So I just listed all the things that are within our nature to do. But we don't live by that nature. We don't live by that economy. We live by the kingdom's economy and how the kingdom works. And it works in a no-partiality way. Romans 12.2 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it says, Don't be conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed. Don't take on the ways of the world and bring it a part of our faith, because they're meaningless. They're useless. They go nowhere. And to God, they mean nothing, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, renewing your mind to The ways of Jesus and the principles of Jesus to your new identity, your new nature. Look at Jesus; he's the best. He's the best person for us to model your identity after. Look at the character of Jesus; he's walking through, he's preaching, he's talking. Crowds are following him. Important people, not important people, holy people, non-holy people, and he spots a guy Zacchaeus in a tree, which nobody paid attention to and nobody cared. And he calls him down and says, I'm coming to your house. That's the Jesus that we follow, that our nature should be modeled after. He comes across a lame man, and his disciples are like, who, who made this guy lame? Why can't he walk? Oh, it must have been sins of his family. And Jesus is like, no, this, we're going to glorify this moment. This isn't a moment to go judge. This is a moment to bring glory. The man with the withered hand, it's one of the best pieces of Scripture it's Sabbath, and Jesus sees he needs healing, and he takes a major risk because it was against the rules to work, but he's like, this man needs healing. This is not, we're not, this is not what the law is about. The law is governed by something greater than just the rules here, and he heals that man. The sinful woman, he's dragged before him that everybody says she should die. He says, why don't you cast the first stone who doesn't have sin? This is how he modeled for us. The widow with two mites, everybody's putting all these exorbitant amounts of wealth into the offering to the temple, and people are like, wow, did you see how much so-and-so This is why we do not pass the plate here, just so you know, is because it's weird when someone's like, oh, here's a wad of hundreds of dollars, and you're like... I got two pennies. It's just like not what it's about. The thing that Jesus does there is he says, listen, I think everybody missed it. This woman gave more than anyone here because she had nothing. That's faith. Even Pilate, Jesus' heart towards ministry, wanting to reason with him or answer his questions and represent the kingdom of heaven to a guy who was going to sentence him to death. That's his heart. Even how he chose his disciples, he showed no partiality. All these great men, James is one of them. Guess what this guy did before he started leading the church? He was catching fish. That's what he did. He was a fisherman. He didn't pick any profound person. He picked people because he looked at the heart. And that's the type of modeling for our new nature that Romans twelve two starts to tell us that we need to get ourselves around. And so Jesus cuts through all the partiality and looks directly at the person. And I'll tell you what, you wouldn't want Jesus to be partial with you. And so we have to be careful not to bring the world's ways into the kingdom's ways. So there's, there's three things that James is going to ask us, three questions That are coming out of this is one is how is your partiality? How is it? Are you like the scene from Forrest Gump when he gets on the bus and all the kids are like, seat's taken, the seat's taken. Do you remember this scene? And he doesn't have anywhere to go. And Jenny's like, you can sit by me, right? It's so it's this great, beautiful moment that nobody wants this kid who's different than everybody else to sit by him. That's the human nature. I think what Jenny does is what Jesus would do James says this, and let's start in verse 1 in chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to it. My brothers, my, 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 my brothers, this is a very endearing greeting. This is, we, we are one. We are family. My brothers, let me talk to you seriously. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. When you see someone see them the way God sees them, and here's the example he starts to give, which is interesting. And when you look at the word show no partiality, this originally meant like, who, who, who do you give your gaze to? Are there people who are just not worth your gaze? Why are people getting your gaze? He's saying, don't show that type of partiality. He says, for if a man wearing gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and says, oh, sit here, here's a good place for you, while you say to the poor man, you go stand over there, or even better, if you want, you can sit at my feet. You have not, uh, he goes on to say, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges, which you shouldn't be, with evil thoughts? What, what James is saying is this doesn't belong in the church. And if you can't, you got to check it at the door because this is not a part of God's assembly. It's to be someone who judges and shows favoritism and has partiality. You know what do some of the examples like, look like this in church today and it 's hard because this does exist in churches, and it maybe an it exist exists in our heart. I was studying old churches and I was looking at the development of cathedrals and churches, and I had discovered something i didn 't realize was happening throughout church history. Our church history is a little messy and what happened was they built this cathedral in the middle of a town. And go ahead and put this picture up. This is the kind of stuff they would do. Uh, this is a layout of a church. This is a seating arrangement like what we do here. But if you look over here, I blew it up a little closer. This is how they made a map of the church, and then they would have families' names in chairs. Now, when you really dig into it, you find out that they sold these chairs to people in the community. And usually what it meant was it was your social ranking within the church as well. And so the wealthier you were, the nicer seats that you got. But this isn't Staples Center. This is the church. And and when they first built cathedrals, they built them just so only the wealthy people could be there. And they thought, oh, this might not be right. So let's open some open seating for those others. And then, but the people got to keep their seats. And in a lot of cases, when you purchased your seats, which you had to pay every single year, you could will those to your next of (laughs) kin. Can you imagine, Larry, if Larry bought this seat? And I was like, no, 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 that's Larry's seat. He paid for that seat. That's unbelievable. But it was, I, I, I sometimes wonder, like, how did they even read this section in James and just not just cringe? So what happened is they decided that they didn't want to disrupt the community too much. So they wanted to keep the same social standings that were in the community, the most important people first. And let's make sure that that's that way in church so we don't have problems. Because we can't have people intermixing like that because it would break the social order. And I just think, what a tragedy. That only recently stopped since the 1800s. We have a long ways to go with this mentality of partiality. I'm very proud of our church. I don't think anybody wants reserved seats for themselves or de- nobody has ever demanded anything special from us. And if you ever do, I will laugh in your face. Like, it's not going to happen. But it, it, it's a status thing. It's a standing thing like then, and we have to make sure we don't have that quick-to-judge mentality for us. I did go to a church a friend of mine was pastoring at, and he asked me to come hear him speak. And I went and I visited, and I was hugely conflicted because they would reserve the first two rows for very important people. And they were people in our culture, very important people. But I just was conflicted by it because I'm thinking, why are just these seats just reserved for only those who are the important of culture and society? They were continuing the practice of this is how our culture works, and so we do it here in church. And it really broke my heart that they did that. It made people feel like there was those and then there is us in those old churches, by the way people would work hard to buy a chair out from somebody and people would be like, oh, they'd they'd know when their social standing changed because they'd see them further up in the church. They'd be like, oh, they've risen. They've risen in ranks. It's not of God at all. But I have this question for you in this section. Do I struggle with partiality? We have to ask that of ourselves. Do I struggle? Where do I struggle? How do I struggle? Do I have biases they're just there that, that maybe God's speaking to me about to remove because I'm not to be the one to judge. Do I just look at the surface value and I don't look past or I don't even seek to, to ask questions to get past the surface? I just make my judgment and move on. Are these areas that I struggle with? We have to ask these questions. This is what James is asking his people because he's saying if we're going to be a kingdom and you're going to represent the kingdom, we cannot represent that. That's what the world does. That's how the world works. That's not how the kingdom works. And then the second section he goes into in verses 5 through 7. He's asking a question in a way of making some statements. He's saying, do you remember the Beatitudes? We love the Beatitudes. But he's asking them, do you remember it? Because you need to remember the Beatitudes, what Jesus taught. I'm going to read them really fast, and then we're going to read James Matthew 5, 3 through 12, in Jesus' sermon to the people, one of his greatest. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen to the words he's using. Listen to the people he's describing. Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Blessed are you. Listen to the type of people he's describing. And James is wanting them to remember this sermon because they're acting contrary to this. They're seeing people in categories and not as new creation. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Because this is about spiritual things, not about fleshly things. For, they, for, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Meaning that we honor these great people, but they were persecuted as well. They were judged as well, and they were uh, treated with partiality as well. Now, James 2, 5-7. Listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom. I wish in some way, I don't know how, but I wish in some way when we see other believers, we could see their heavenly bank account. That might help us. Don't you think so? That might help us a little bit to, to, to maybe give someone more time or to maybe look past certain things and go, oh, wow, like man, if I could just see you, if I see all you the way God sees what you do and who you are, oh, I wish that could be the case. But he's saying we need to look at heavenly things and kingdom things and not worldly kingdom things. He says, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich ones who oppress you? This is what's happening in their their culture at this time. And the ones who drag you into court almost regularly. People who were converting from Judaism to Christianity at this time were losing so much. They would lose their lands. They would lose their jobs. And then people were like, you know what? So-and-so owes me some money. I'm going to bring him into court and haul him to jail. We'll deal with the Christians this way. And he's saying, "How how could you lose sight of all that just by, wow, someone has money? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Are you missing the trees within... You're missing the forest within the trees here. And so James is drawing something out of them. I want to see drawn out of us as well. And then the last section here is 8 through 13. And he's asking this question, do we live by this royal law of Jesus? And this is where a little bit of theology comes in, but but really it's still a challenge. Matthew 20, 20, 22 is this royal law, what he gets it from. And Jesus is being peppered with questions from these religious law leaders and Pharisees trying to get him to stumble so they can get him. And they're asking him question after question. And somebody asks him a question about what is the greatest commandments. And then he says, oh, to love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus states the royal law. And then he says, and all the law and the prophets essentially are governed by that. Now, I love that. Because all of the things about your, your faith and the great practices we do and everything we put our energy into, he's saying, if it doesn't have the love of your neighbor and you're not practicing that, then you're missing the point. James 8, 13, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine if you're one of these people practicing what he is pointing out and the conviction you would feel like, oh, I've I've lost my way, I've lost what it's all about. He says, then you're doing well if you practice that. And if you show partiality, you are committing a sin, and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And you're gonna, it gets technical for a second, but then it, it, it gets clear really fast. It says, for whoever does the whole law, meaning the law of Moses, but fulfills but fails in one point, he is guilty of all of it. For he said, do not commit adultery, and it also said, do not commit Murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Let let me point out what he's trying to say. He's saying this, that if you say, well, listen, I've worked hard on so many of the other things. I don't kill people. That's a win. I don't, I'm not doing adultery. That's winning. You know, uh, I love God, but we're not showing love towards our neighbor, he's saying, you might think it's minimal, okay? You might think that's small, but one transgression of the law makes you unrighteous in all of it. It's like a puzzle piece. It's, Anne and I are big into puzzles. So like, uh, it's annoying because if you're a puzzle person, the, the, the more complex the puzzle, the, the, the worse it gets, right? But you know, if you do puzzles, the very first thing that you do is you begin to work on the outside edges, Right? if you're smart, you're going to do the outside edges, you're going to frame it in, and you're going to be like, okay, we got the frame. And that's how they would see the law. Oh, I got the big ones. I got all the framed out right. And then there's all these other pieces. "Eh, eh." Right? But then if you're not putting them all again, righteousness, according to the old law of which you are no longer under, was even if you got it all and you missed a piece, you missed it all And so he's saying, like, if you want to live that way and thinking that, oh, I can kind of just, eh, how I treat somebody, but I do all these other things. It's like the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do? I do all these other things. And Jesus says, oh, then just next thing would be just to give all your money away and then you can come follow me. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's just, it's just, I cannot do that, but I do all these other ones. And so he's saying, you can do all the church practices. You can do all these things and you can feel good about yourself. But if you're missing this, you're missing not only the royal law, but you're missing part of it. So don't judge yourself righteous by the good things that you do and then do these things that are not righteous. We don't live under that. And so James is kind of bringing them to their roots, right? And then reminding them that they're not under that law. He says this, so speak And so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, you were working by this puzzle piece and you were trying to put pieces in, you felt real good. Hey, I got a lot of the puzzle completed. But he's saying, listen, when you live by the law, that's how you will have to live and you will never complete every single puzzle piece and you'll be judged completely by that. One wrong is all wrong. But in the law of liberty, where you have freedom you don't experience that. He's saying there's a flip that happens. According to the law, the things that I do, the things that I do make me righteous, right? According to Jesus and the, his covenant, you are made righteous. But then out of that, the law written on your heart is beginning to manifest in doing good things. So he's saying, guys, I think you're missing the point here. You're made righteous in God's eyes, but don't let that make you slack when it comes to to, to treating your neighbor as yourself. How dare us do that? You know, True faith in Jesus is because you're righteous, and so we act out of the righteousness. We don't do things to be righteous. We act out of what is already there. So remember who you are and act how Jesus acted. It flips the whole thing. Now, how do you act like Jesus. How can you do that? How can you transfer your nature in that way? I love what Paul says, and he says it best. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. Have you ever thought about that? Like the love of Christ controls me? What does that mean? The love of Christ controls me. The word controls, when you look at it, it really means that you're held together by love. It's the very love of Christ that, 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 that controls you, holds you together, propels you, puts you on your path. It, it's sustaining you. It, I would say it's your anchor. And so we're saying it's the love of Christ that controls us, it compels us because we have concluded this, <clears throat> that the one who died for all, this is very inclusive language, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might no longer live for themselves, but for him whom for their sake died and was raised. Now verse 16, from now on, therefore regard no one according to the flesh. This is what James is getting to the heart of. Paul puts a bit more of a polish on it. So we don't regard people as that way. And and if there's one message I think that I I really felt convicted about, it's I do this. I regard people according to the flesh. And James convicted me this week deeply about areas of my life where I allow that to happen. I pray that you experience the same things because all that will happen is you will begin to experience what it means to love people at a deeper level than you ever have or to see people with the very eyes of God. And when you begin to do that, you begin to get more on mission and less off task and you get less entitled and more humble, and you begin to see people as this beautiful creation that God has made, that by you seeing them differently might open a door in your heart that will eventually open a door in their heart towards even Christ. By the way, that chapter, if you read it, it's the famous part. So he's saying, don't judge people according to the flesh. Like, come on, we're controlled by Christ, right? You are righteous, but then follow Christ's way and then his leading. And then at the very end of verse 20, he then calls us ambassadors. And that's that big challenge. You are ambassadors. Wherever you go, you're representing Jesus. So would Jesus sit there and look and go, how could that person? That person did not dress right for church. Look at them. Is is that an ambassador? right? Or we stand at our high place and go, well, I'm not like them, so I can feel good about myself today in church. Are we doing that? Is that, is that like an ambassador? So I'm, I, I'm pointing this out hard because I believe our church is very kind and very gracious, and I can't even think of one person who does this. But I do think that when we go home, and we examine our heart, and we go, where do I do this at all? I got to make sure I, I work on this. Because if it creeped into the church there, freshly after they saw Jesus resurrected, then it could surely creep into the church at any time and into our heart. Christians must be people who live by the royal law. You must live out of that. Everything that we do then is loving thy neighbor as ourselves. Every Christian practice that we do, that we feel so good about, must be governed by loving God with all of our heart and loving people. And so everything falls underneath that. So what you're doing in your, in your practice is that you can feel good about is it, is it through loving God and loving people, the royal law. That's how we judge. Listen to this commentary and then we'll read the last verse. He says, for James in this commentary, for both faith and love have a strong and compelling moral urgency. Faith and love, they work hand in hand. Faith in God and love for God, cannot be separated away from the way the neighbor is treated. And so they have to go hand in hand. So how much you love God is how much we love our neighbor. Our faith in God and love for God is hand in hand with how we treat our neighbor. And and James will do this all throughout the book of James, of hitting the people right in the face and saying, listen to me, you cannot just talk, you must do. Word, words mean nothing. Right now, we need action. And James is saying, we need your action. Verse 13, for judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, right? There'll be judgment, sorry, for judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, meaning, and, and I, don't, I don't know how it looks before we stand before God, but we will have a day of accountability, and, and, and we will experience A judgment of sorts, I don't really know exactly, but how do we want to stand before God in the way that we've treated people? And I love this last statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. Every time you're encountering somebody and you're experiencing this feeling to want to judge or prejudge or make an internal comment or have a, a snide remark or just remember, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy will always triumph over judgment. And we expect the same mercy from God, we should give the same mercy to others. I'll, I'll close this with this, and I wanted probably like one maybe thought about okay, so what would James tell his congregants to do? And James would probably say this when you are encountering someone and you're feeling this judgment and you're feeling your heart, do what you know it shouldn't be doing. Just say to yourself, You are my neighbor. To your heart, to yourself, you you are my neighbor. You are my neighbor. As, as hard as it is to fight, as much as you want to step away from somebody or classify them, you are my neighbor. And you'll be living by the royal law when you act that out and see them as God sees them. So let's pray. God, we ask today that as we reflect on James and we think about these thir- 13 simple verses that have profound impact on our hearts. I ask that none of us today leave without examining our hearts. And God, I know what happens from that. that. When we humble ourselves before that type of correction, and God, then our our life and how we treat people around us changes. We will see more people come to the Lord. We will see a, a joy in our heart. We probably haven't experienced in a long time. And we will see a mission that will start to shape and take place with certain people in our life. And God, I pray that Soundhouse is a place that people feel that they come in and they do not feel judged and they feel connected. And I ask that you work on my heart as a pastor of this church and God work on every single person's heart here to be a place that, that, that holds faith and love tightly, and, and when it comes to treating our neighbor, we treat them with love because we have faith in you. And as you loved us, we will love them. So God, anybody struggling, anybody here who is really, really battling, maybe with this message, I ask that you just shower them with grace, shower them with mercy, remind them of who they are to you, and remind them of the new creation that they are. And God, remind them of who Jesus is and was and and modeled for us. And God, help them get out of any shame they might feel about how they've been in the past or currently being towards people and begin to walk into a path of grace, love, loving that neighbor. God, we love you and we thank you so much for your message on non-partiality. Our world needs it more than ever. Our friends need it more than ever. Our family needs it more than ever. Our church needs it more than ever. No partiality, just love. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing this last song?